Howdy. Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee. And this week, I had the opportunity to speak with Reverend Richard Bledsoe about his book from the Theopolis Institute, Metropolitan Manifesto. I enjoyed the book because it talked about the kind of people that pastors need to be, the kind of wisdom that they need to accomplish their goals, and even the idea of of a pastor as counselor to the king is something I think is not on the radar of many pastors today. And so I was eager to talk more about it with him. One book along those same lines from the Canon Press shelf is Douglas Wilson's Mother Kirk, Essays on Church Life. What does it mean to be a faithful pastor? Modern evangelicals have gained money, power, and influence, and it has been like giving whiskey to a two-year-old. The need of the hour is theological, not political. The arena is the pulpit and the table, not the legislative chamber. Before we are equipped to proclaim his lordship to the inhabitants of all the earth, we must live as though we believed in the church. You can find Mother Kirk at canonpress.com. Without further ado, meet Reverend Richard Bledsoe. All right, now welcoming on special guest, Reverend Richard Bledsoe. He has spent his life as a pastor to city leaders in Colorado. Over the years, he's become the unofficial bishop of his city, a recognized advisor to the king. In his book, which we're interviewing him about today, Metropolitan Manifesto, he lays out a theology behind his work, explains how to minister to leaders, and shares the lessons of his long experience. Reverend, thank you so much for coming on today. It's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So I have, uh, I'm very excited to talk to you. I told you I've been, I've been uh, reading you off and on for, for years. I was excited to interview about this book, especially because of a lot of the footnotes. Mm-hmm. I thoroughly enjoyed myself in the footnotes. Actually, before I get too carried away, do you mind just telling us about the book? Could you introduce the book to folks? Well, I was um, sent to Bakke Graduate School by some very kind people here in Boulder to do a doctor of ministry. Uh, Bakke Graduate School was started by Ray Bakke, who is somebody who's been involved in city ministry. He was a pastor in Chicago for many years. And then they started a graduate program, Doctor of Ministry. And uh, what was unique about that program is that they send you to cities all over the world to see what the church is doing. And then uh, as a final thesis, you you write your own thesis. And so I wrote on my, the reason I was sent was because of the kind of work that I've done in Boulder. And it fit uh, the parameters of what that school was about. So I wrote a doctor of ministry thesis. And then there were some people um, associated with Jim Jordan who wanted me to turn it into a book. So that's what we did. So essentially, it's a doctoral thesis turned into a book. Love it. (laughs) <laughs> now, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about the thesis of that book? Yes. The ministry that grew up 
that I've been associated with here in Boulder, oh, I suppose it goes back to 1995, maybe a little earlier, when a number of pastors in Boulder began to gather together for a at least a monthly prayer meeting, and I think it got to be more often than that. And then it developed into a ministry of inviting um, some city or university or county official to a luncheon. Uh, and then at the lunch, we would invite them to talk to us about their ministry, or excuse me, their uh, job <laughs> in, the, in the city. I mean, it might be somebody like the university president or the mayor or uh, city manager or sure. somebody somebody like that. And uh, then what began to happen, and actually in doing this, we were just copying the Pentecostals in South America who pioneered some of this. And there have been several, they've written several very interesting books about city ministry themselves. And they began to ask the question of these officials, what is there in your job that's too big for any man or any woman to help you with? And we will pray for that. Well, we found, this is, uh, I think I say in the book, this a little, this is a little bit like the discovery of penicillin. You know, it was an accident, <laughs> uh, although it was providential, of course, but Find that uh, we found that city officials or university officials or actually any public officials, it would go all the way up to the president. There's no question about it. They all feel, they all know they're in way over their heads. And they actually have very little real wiggle room or real power. And they all feel actually under it all pretty helpless. Okay. And they, and these are all, I mean, Boulder is not exactly in the middle of the Bible Belt. Sure. Uh, it's, it's well known as a very liberal city. These are all secular, liberal people. They just, gosh, they, they could hardly wait to get prayed for. They would, uh, we invited one official, I, I issued the invitation, and then I said to this official, and when you come, we'd like to know, What's too big for any man or woman to help you with? And we will pray for you. This official brought a whole list. It was a list that filled up a whiteboard. And we proceeded to pray for that list. And a whole bunch of those things actually came to pass. Wow. So they, she wanted to come back and see us again. And we began to have that kind of experience became fairly and it was not unusual. And one of the other things we found is that usually the only reason that people will approach an official is either because they want something or they're mad. Okay. And when they would actually meet a group of pastors, I remember one official that came to see us, and this official had the day before been attacked by the newspaper it was headlines and she was standing up in front and about to you know address us a little bit and she just burst into tears and she said oh your faces are so kind <laughs> <laughs> and we discovered that by and large officials 
of all stripes. They don't, they don't meet anybody who really cares about them as people. Uh, they're meeting people who are angry or who want something. So to meet pastors who actually care about them and then offer in such a daring way to pray for them, that is unique in their experience. And sure. We were surprised. We really were surprised at the sort of reception we got. It was quite, quite remarkable, actually. So it was from that experience yeah. that you then laid the groundwork theologically yeah. for this? Yeah, and I, I became the point man, mostly, for a number of these relationships and followed them up. And I actually became a chaplain or a pastor to some of these people. And, and we even saw several conversions. Wow. So, yeah, it seemed like it was worth uh, putting on paper, writing down, because it seemed seemed like it had maybe pioneered a way of actually ministering in the modern world. So the thought the thought was this is really worth turning into a book. Okay, awesome. And I, as far as you can tell, how has reception been for the book? Have you? Have you heard similar stories? What have you? What what has been that experience? I I don't think it's turned into a bestseller. <laughs> not yet. Uh, not not yet. Yeah. After after this, I'm yeah, sure it will. I'm sure too. Well, I I can't say it's just been a stunning, overwhelming response. It does seem like wherever I go, and if I ever speak about this. The, the level of interest in it is is very, high. very high. Yep. Yeah. So one of the things that sort of goes assumed in the book, well, a couple of things maybe. One is the idea that the pastor's office or sphere could encapsulate something like counselor to the king office. And then secondly, sort of the kind of person that pastor needs to be in order to do that role well. So in my experience with churches, I've growing up and I left for college, so I've been all over in my short time, but I imagine not very many of those guys would be very good at it or assume that it's a role they should put on. As you wrote the book, did you, were you kind of writing towards people like yeah, that? Yeah, fine, trying to find people who, because not everybody is good at it. Sure. Uh, one of the, to, to address the first question. One of my early discoveries was, now I'm ordained in the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. I never went to any official as, you know, I'm here representing the PCA. They frankly could care less. Right. <laughs> but if I went and they knew that I was a representative of the pastors of the city, they always cared about that. Okay. Because because they would know at the very outset, I mean, even if they'd never met me and maybe were even skeptical or maybe really didn't want to meet me too much, that, well, if he's representing the pastors of the city, that's a lot of people right. that I'm answerable to in one way or another. So it would be good to meet him. So that's the first thing, is um, you're you're actually a part of the church in the city, not part of a denomination or of uh, some particular theological group. 
That's the first thing. Sure. Second thing is in terms of the kind of person that's good at it, I think the I think the kind of pastor who surprisingly might be better at this than other people is the pastor of a small church. Pastor of a large church, as Peter Wagner says, is often he's not actually a shepherd, he's actually a Oh, what's the word? Now the word has escaped me. A rancher. That's the word he uses. Okay. He's a rancher. Uh, he's somebody who's very good at delegating a lot of uh, what has to happen. He's good at managing things. Uh, and the assumption is often, I've found, that if if you're looking for somebody who's going to be, quote, the bishop, unquote, of the city, you're looking for somebody from a big, important a large church because that's what's going to impress people. Sure. Actually, not so. Sure. In the first place, that's often the kind of person who's in a position of authority. Um, they're the same kind of person. And they often will view that a pastor of a very large church might even be a threat, you know, that, oh, you know, 10,000 people go to your church. Yep. Well, uh, you're trying to pressure me here. You're right. like part of a pressure group. He, Yeah, he pastors a giant voting block for them. Right, exactly, exactly. Yep. Whereas what seems to be what they, what they really need is an intensely personal pastor, somebody they can talk to, somebody who knows how to deal with people on an intimate level, somebody who really is a pastor. Sure. So that very often, that might be, instead of a head pastor, it might be an associate pastor, somebody who's in, maybe in charge of congregational uh, ministry or something like that, or the pastor of a small church, which I always was. I don't have many administrative gifts. I, I would be a big flop as uh, head pastor of a large church. I'm, I'm not an administrator, but I am good at shepherding people. I'm a good counselor. I'm a good pastor. And that's the kind of person I think who probably in most instances would be the most successful in filling this kind of a role. It sounds, and that's a, it's a little bit surprising because, because the assumption is, well, we want people from big, important, recognizable places, yep. but not necessarily. Even going even closer to the nature of the man himself is something that I noticed, and this may sound trite, but you seem to really labor at, at him being someone who is wise. Um, and as trite as that sounds, there are, th there are aspects of your book, and I mentioned at the start, I was very eager, obviously, but I, I, what I enjoyed about your footnotes were there were a lot of people like Edwin Friedman, Rosenstock-Cusi, like basically men, uh, basically there were people in the footnotes that are helping you to see better, whether that's through uh, like how people operate, how like emotional triangles work, or how to see the times. How do you read history and how do you read the future? Th there were those kind of things that I saw in your footnotes that that you seem to be getting at as well, that like the person that can lend a hand to the king would need to be someone who's wise. You know, you'd actually have to have something to offer him 
and not beyond as in like you don't need it but you, you were mentioning first and foremost they need to know that you care that you are a pastor you're not looking to get anything out of them you're not a voting block etc but right. more than that you would have some if they asked you a question that you could have something to give to them and i thought man in my experience that right there would be what i've seen that would be the biggest pain point of your book in terms of like the reason i want to give it to people is like there's this side of pastoral ministry that I feel like goes really neglected. Well, you, you named the two names you brought up would be two very, very important names. Edwin Friedman, uh, who as a disciple of Murray Bowen is somebody who's applied family therapy, yep. uh, family, what, what we know about family dynamics to churches and synagogues. And it can, it can be applied to larger communities. That is, he's a very, very important figure. And Rosenstock, you see, I almost regard as my great teacher. Of course, he's he was dad before I ever heard of him. But Rosenstock, you see, was he was a Jewish Christian. He became a Christian when he was sixteen years of age. His father was a German banker. His mother was not German. Excuse me, was not Jewish. I think she may have been a Christian, and he personally became a Christian when he was 16. Uh, went through the First World War, and in common with Ludwig Wittgenstein, who Wittgenstein apparently had the revelation of the Tractatus while he was in the trenches of World War One. Rosenstock, you see, had his great revelation in the trenches of World War One. Uh, and he had the whole outline of his great book, uh, Out of Revolution, Autobiography of Western Man, come to him. Wow. Uh, he fled Germany. Oh, it would have been the late 30s, I think, because of Hitler. He ended up in America, got a job. Harvard hired him. He was one of those Germans who had one of those extraordinary German educations. Harvard hired him, but they didn't know what to do with him. He was competent to teach in five or six different departments. So they put him, he was always talking about God, so they put him in the divinity school. <laughs> but he left after a year because he said, I'm not a theologian. I'm a sociologist and historian. Went to Dartmouth, and he spent the rest of his life at Dartmouth. Um, and I think Rosenstock, you see, is one of the most important figures, intellectual figures of the 20th century, but still almost unknown. And yes, when I've shared some of his insights with leaders, they have, they universally respond to them. One of them, which seems to give order to, to a lot of things, I've, I've talked to university presidents about this, that Rosenstock Husey said, we are entering a time when, when there are going to be two major forces at work in the world. One of them is the, and he said this in the, this would have been like the 40s when he said this. One is neo-tribalism. He said tribalism is going to come back. And the other is globalism. And what you tend to have you have people like Friedman with the New York Times, who they're big on globalism. A lot of people understand globalism out, is out there. And there are other people who understand that, yeah, we're seeing a real revival of tribalism. But to this day, 
I've never seen anybody who said it's going to be both at once. And both of those great powers are going to be working at exactly the same time. And that I've seen that give us, I've just seen lights go on with people. Oh, oh, yes. (laughs) That's just one. That's one insight that he has, but it's, it's really, he's extraordinary. He's an extraordinary figure. Do you see that? So the, the field of work that you throw somebody like Edwin Friedman, Rosenstock, QC, Rene Girard, you throw like men like that. If you were to give a reading list, like what would you call that for pastors? And, and why has that area sort of been, it seems to me, and I could be, I'd, I'd be curious to hear from you. It seems to me has been totally disregarded as a, as a place of study for pastors. What would you call that list? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I mean, is it uh, just like a people study? Is it, you know, anthropology kind of assumes something else out there in the world, but just the study of well people? Of uh, people of history, of movements in history. This is what officials, officials are having to deal with groups of people all the time. Right. And they need insight into what's what's actually making them move, and yep. they they're often baffled. Well, another another figure that would go on that yeah. list would be James James Jordan, my friend. Yes, Jim and I yeah, Jim course. and I have been friends for years, and I don't know of anybody who has the typological insight into the Bible that he has. One of the things I learned from Jim, and this is throughout the book. And it's one of the insights that immediately grabs officials. And that's the very simple fact that the number seven is the number of completion in the Bible. And if you if you cut that in two, it's uh, three and a half, which is 42 months. And 42 months comes up in the prophets a lot. Well, that's three and a half years. It's cut in two. I suspect that Jesus was actually crucified at 42 months, three and a half years. It means he was cut off in the middle, and he was not allowed to achieve. It looked like, I mean, of course he did because he was resurrected, so his own followers, but he took the curse. And one of the things that I tell, that I've told a lot of officials is, look, here's what you're up against. Uh, in order to bring meaningful change to any institution, you have to be in office between takes between seven and ten years. The truth is, everybody says they want change, but when change comes, nobody wants it. And in all likelihood, here's what's going to happen to you. Here you are. I'm greeting you in your your first year in office. And you're welcomed as a hero because you've been brought in to solve all the problems your predecessor couldn't. It's going to be wonderful. That was just bubbles and champagne for a year. Second year, it's not quite so nice. Third year, things start to get really hot. And somewhere between the third and the fourth year, because change is beginning to come, they will try to crucify you. Yeah. And it's only if you can get through that crucifixion that and, and get to the other side. If you get to the other side because you have faith, you will actually be in a period of resurrection and you can then 
actually achieve something. Your first three and a half years are going to be very crucial for foundation, but they're coming after you. They all, everybody says they get it. And it's like somebody's put words to what everybody knows is true. And I've seen, I've seen a couple of instances, well, I've seen instances of both where, uh, yep, three and a half came and the forces of crucifixion are out there. And most people in most offices from in many places, they, they last about five years because they're, but they're really, they're finished. And that's why they resign because they, they don't think they can survive anything more. Uh, there's one official, I won't name, of course, but one official who went through, oh, it was ghastly and horrible and awful. He literally made it to seven years, and he did that quite purposefully. Uh, and it was after, wow. Yeah, you talk about somebody being crucified. He really was. But he left on his own terms. He, he named his own successor. Oh, nice. And for years, there wasn't a peep from that organization. It was just peaceful for the next 14 years. Wow. And he really did bring real renewal. And it's because when he walked out at seven years, he took all the conflict with him. Sure. And it was gone. And there was peace and uh, considerable uh, forward movement in in that organization. Right. So it's, it's those kind of things, whether it's, you know, being yeah. able to, to see, you know, whether it's like with, with Friedman's thing of sabotage, like, Oh, I made like one exactly. strong decision and there was immediate yes. sabotage. So that's helpful yes. to, you know, be able to see on the blackboard, but then, yes. you know, having somebody come alongside you and, and tell you it's not enough to just see it on the blackboard, but here's how you sort of see it through. Like, how do you, how can you sort of uh, swerve all of the binds that are happening and not become, you know, victim to those kinds of things? It's that kind of stuff that I think if if uh, more and more leaders and even just head of households knew, you know, it, it, those are the things that I think would be something that's really helpful to yes. a lot of people in, in ways yes. that life just is not very fun. Right. Anyway, right. uh, so th th that was one of the bigger things that I really, really enjoyed about your book. And then I'm curious now, so that when did you write that thesis, that doctoral thesis? 2013, I think I had my... Oh, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so that's, that's not... That's what it was. So that's not very yeah. long ago. No. So I'm, I'm curious, like, if you were to write the, you know, 2023 version... Is there a lot that would change in that dynamic? Have you seen ways in which, uh, whether it's the city proper has changed or maybe even the way you see officials relating to people of faith, is there anything that would you would adjust or account for? Well, I think, I think and I'm not sure that I, I'm the person to do it. I think it may be the next generation that has to figure this out. But the new big thing everywhere is the LGBT thing. Yeah. And it is affecting. Now, how you deal with that as a Christian, I can't say that I figured that out. Yep. Or how you are able to approach people who are part of that or who are living in the midst of that. I think that's, that's the biggest thing that I've seen come on the scene. 
Okay. In a way that just, in as sort of a disrupting factor. Yes. Okay. Yes. And as, as a series of expectations. Sure. It dictates who and how you hire. Sure. It maybe doesn't dictate, but it certainly plays in uh, pretty heavily. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I'm, I'd be very curious. And I thought, man, I enjoyed your book so much. I was like, man, I wonder, you know, what would the 2.0 look like? Or how do we, you know, anyway, it was just things I was thinking along. And I didn't know if you had thoughts or. That's the biggest thing. Yep. That I've seen. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Now, what else do you have going on? I am a hospice and a hospital chaplain. Okay. So uh, that occupies, hospice actually occupies more of my time. I'm a per diem at a nearby hospital. Okay. And, awesome. But I'm a part-time chaplain with a hospice. That's awesome. That's great. So I'm dealing with uh, the dying and the sick yep. a lot. And with, with staffs. With, uh, I actually, I have to say, actually, I enjoy dealing with staff the most. Okay. In both hospitals and in hospice. Now, is that still happen? That's in Boulder. You're still doing that there. Still say again. No, you're still in Boulder, correct? I'm still in Boulder. Okay, correct. awesome, awesome. That's awesome. You haven't by chance ever had a Boulder chocolate shake porter, have you? No, okay. <laughs> I haven't. Because <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite beers is always on uh, tap in in a where I used, I went to college in Minneapolis and it was always uh-huh. on tap uh-huh. over there. And so anyway, a big nod to Boulder. Um, yes, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, for folks that uh, would love to hear more from you or go find more of your stuff, is there anywhere you would want to send folks if if they're if they want to know more about you or or get more resources? kind of in the vein that we've been talking about? Well, I, I do have another book I wrote. Yeah. Can Saul Alinsky Be Saved? It's Oh, nice. My old professor, John Frame, encouraged me to write it. That's awesome. And it's largely apologetics in line with uh, Cornelius Van Til. So okay. it's something of a, of a popularization awesome. along those lines. Where can folks find that? Uh, it's on Amazon. Okay. Both, awesome. both these books are on Amazon. Fantastic. All right, folks. So go find that over at Amazon. We'll, we'll try to put links in there for folks to make it easy. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Reverend Bledsoe, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. God bless. Cheers.